vermouth is super versatile. It can be consumed in the cocktails, can be consumed just on its own or just in a spritzers. I wouldn't imagine having a cocktail bar where I wouldn't have a vermouth. Contemporary spirits, which are in many cocktails mixed with vermouth, should need or could need a contemporary interpretation of vermouth. And that's what we did. Welcome to the Diageo Bar Academy podcast, Bar Chat. This is Tristan Stevenson. Today's episode is all about vermouth. So I've got two experts in the studio to help us understand how vermouth is made, what it tastes like, and how it can be used. Eric Lorenz is the former head bartender of the Savoy Hotel in London, or the American bar, the Savoy to be more specific. And Max Wagner is the founder of Balthazar Vermouth. On the episode, we discuss the origins of vermouth, the different styles of vermouth, and the various cocktails that call for vermouth, as well as how vermouth might be the solution to the cocktail and food pairing conundrum. Max shares with us the founding story of Balthazar and the developmental process of their particular range of vermouths, while Eric shares with us some of the great recipes and bartender wisdom where it comes to implementing vermouth on a cocktail menu. I can't think of two better people to journey into vermouth with, so buckle up and enjoy the ride with us. Welcome to another episode of Bar Chat. Um, uh, I am here, joined in the virtual studio this time by Max Wagner and Eric Lorenz. Hello, gentlemen. Hello, Tristan. Nice to meet you. Hello, hello, Tristan. It's been a long time. Before we get into um, the, the guts of this episode, we are going to start with some quickfire questions just to break the ice a little bit and get the conversation flowing. So um, because there's two of you, we're going to go back and forth between you, starting with you, Max. Are you ready for your quickfires? Ready when you are. London or New York? London. Eric, Jerry Thomas or Harry Craddock? Harry Craddock. Uh, Max, muddler or blender? Blender. Eric, ask permission or beg for forgiveness? Forgiveness. <laughs> Max, lemon or lime? Lemon. Eric, lager or lagavulin? Both. <laughs> Five. Uh, Max, do you believe in ghosts? Yes. Eric, which annoys you more as a garnish? Bad cherries or wilted mint? Uh, very bad cherries, probably. Martini, shaken or stirred? Depends really on the mood. I mean it. Um, shaken. It's always good. Cool. Eric, coffee or tea? Tea. And final one, Max, canned beer or bottled beer? It changed the last years. When I was young, it was canned beer immediately, then it was bottled beer. And nowadays, we get very good canned beer. So, um, and aluminium is pretty easy and cool to recycle, canned beer. Canned beer has become super fashionable, hasn't it? Um, it used to be like that only the cheap beers came in cans, and now it's almost like an emblem of the craft beer movement, isn't it? Exactly. But, you know, the thing is, it makes totally sense. The producing aluminium is very intensive in, uh, in using energy. On the other side, aluminium really is a product which can be 100% recycled, whereas uh, glass isn't. Quality-wise, there have been amazing improvements made. So I can't be a, can be can be very good. Oh, I like that. That's good. Um, there's a company here in the UK that can stuff called We Can. I just I think that's just such a great name for a canning company. <laughs> um, we've done our quick fires. And now it might be useful for our listeners to do some introductions for anyone who's not aware of who you guys are and, and what your experience is in the industry. So, Eric, I mean, maybe people would need to have been living under the rock for the, for the last like 10 years if they haven't heard of you. But nevertheless, there may indeed be these human beings on the planet um, who are ignorant to you and your bartending prowess. Give us a little bit of backstory about um, your career so far. So my bartending career started in a country where I'm from, Slovakia, where actually the cocktail culture wasn't really established, or there was none, I would say. And I just had this idea, vision of becoming a bartender, finishing my studies, studied hospitality management, and that really caught my attention. Then I found the bartending school in Prague, learning about all the classics, techniques, history, product knowledge, so on and so on. And was very fortunate that the guy who ran the school, Roman Uhlish, he was consulting on first cocktail bar in Bratislava, Slovakia. So when he found out that I'm from Slovakia, I said, hey, they're opening a bar there. And they need a staff. So I ended up nearly two and a half months traveling between Bratislava and Prague. I ended up working in Bratislava, of course, for three and a half years. And after I realized, okay, there's so much to learn about bartending and there's so much going on in this bartending scene. 
things, products that I um, just can't see because the Slovakian market was just a little bit starting. It was the first cocktail bar, then more and more bars that were opening. It really was uh, attracting me to go abroad because once I wanted to learn English and with that I see more access to information because all the books I found they were all written in English. All the other schools which I discovered they were all English lecturing. So it's like, let's go to London. Came to London with the language, ended in the language school straight away, and I started looking for a job. So I started as a barback because I couldn't speak in English. And then I thought, okay, I worked in a cocktail bar, worked in a nightclub, worked in a restaurant, but never worked in a hotel bar. And obviously, I discovered that London has some amazing hotel bars. So my first job was Sanderson at the, the Purple Bar. But then I quickly thought, okay, this is amazing, nice. I think it was Henry Besson set it up with Sagar Padovani. And, but I wanted to be a part of the new opening. So I wanted to be really like taking a part of creating the menu and being really there from the scratch. And this is something which I was then thinking very useful one day if I want to open my own bar. And then I've heard that Connaught uh, is opening. So I got in touch with Ago because I heard that he was already talking with them. And I said, this would be a brilliant team if Agoperon and myself, we would join together plus other guys. That would be amazing. So I joined the team and, uh, and uh, from the Connaught, I spent it for two years. After work class, 2010, I got an offer from the Savoy as the head bartender for the big reopening. And obviously that's something you not, you don't even think about it. You just go for it straight away because... Once I, I was, a, it was a big opening, a lot of expectation, amazing experience. Plus, I didn't even apply for it, so they offered me the job. So it's like I have to take this. There's no excuse, no way to come back from it. And I spent there about eight years. It was a good eight years, good experience from management perspective, and a lot to run the bar. How to run such a? It's a monstrum. It's it's amazing bar that it's been operating seven days a week. Uh, all day and, and and it was just like it never stopped so that was a great experience to understand how to run such a big bar on full speed because we never closed we never closed since i've been there and after that i thought okay now is the time to open my own bar and that was 2018 when i left and uh, that already i had a site i had everything ongoing and started doing the work and planning quaint on head on street which was open in 2019 in may um amazing amazing career um and max how about yourself um tell us about your entry into the drinks world and uh, and and how balthazar came about probably it's the it's the chain of uh, some lucky coincidences leading one one step to another because in fairness i was never i'm always saying i'm not playing planning more than five years ahead because it doesn't make just doesn't make sense life has told me so many times things change so it started probably after school. I went into, I actually went to London about two days after I finished school. Went to London, worked at White Cube Gallery, stayed there for half a year, really living into my creative phase, let's say it that way. And after that, I joined, I stepped into hospitality. So I started an apprenticeship in a five-star hotel in Berlin, which I quit after three months because um, although so many years later I'm coming back, you know, serving uh, hospitality, I could figure back then it was not my world. It was not something that suited me. And um, quite usually what you do when you don't know what to do in Germany, just study business. So that's what I did. Uh, gave me a little gap for three years uh, doing my bachelor's degrees. Um, after that, I joined a marketing agency, you know, presenting new products of other companies, big international companies, crazy projects. Um, and this is how it started for me to feel that I'm into quality products. I love products. I love when people manufacture something. And back then I pictured in order to get there, I need another degree. You know, I come from a probably classic educational background. So I said, okay, let's do a master's degree. So again, studying business, because I still couldn't figure what it really was. But it was during my master's studies that I figured that for me personally, the drinks industry is something I could really, really look into, look up to, identify with. Because for me at the end, you know, it's two things in life. You get food, um, liquids and air into your body. Everything else, clothing is just on top, but really, and everything that hospitality for me stands for is experience, is emotion, is product get into you. So it was 2010 when I joined a small gin distillery in Munich, among the very first who ever made gin in Germany. And I was uh, like the third person joining there. The next three years we set it up. When I left, it was 17 people. Um, 
And it was that time very important for me because that's when I met my later then business partner, Sebastian, who addressed me and said, look, Max, uh, you know, he did tonic water and uh, during the same time, his own company. And he said, look, Max, uh, why don't you want to want to start something with me? And say, what are you up to? I say, yeah, I want to make of a move. So um, I got my head into it and probably was a decision of 24 hours, quitting everything, collecting money, friends, uh, friends and family, I'd say. And um, so then we, in 2013, Sebastian and I started Belsazar Vermouth, and it has been a, a ride ever since. I mean, it was a time where people would say, Vermouth is something you cannot really taste, in, at least in Germany. Uh, um, it would be interesting to hear from Eric's perspective later on, obviously, what Vermouth's perception was everywhere else. In Germany, it didn't have a good reputation. And this is then how the, the journey started uh, until probably one big milestone in 2018 was the integration into uh, the Diageo universe, the Diageo portfolio, where Belsazar now is is part of. Um, and Sebastian and me still being up with the brand on fire, obviously getting uh, getting opportunities you know, to see the world. I mean, it's brilliant to see you, Eric, again. Uh, last time we met was in Glasgow um, during World Class, where Adam at the BA uh, in the UK set up this perfect pop-up where you actually threw a whole night, which was just amazing. And so where, where did the idea for Vermouth actually come from? You know, was it kind of more business orientated, like an you know, observation of a gap in the market? You know, there weren't, weren't very many craft Vermouths around. And you mentioned also like Germany, Vermouth wasn't seen in very high regard. So, you know, that sounds a bit like a risky move. Um, those are a couple of questions and points to answer, but uh, one step at a time, uh, super risky move. I mean, when Sebastian and I started, it was just the two of us and everybody more or less were looking at us saying, you can't be for real. Um, but I think that has something to do with entrepreneurship and attitude on the one side. On the other side, it was Sebastian's idea. You know, Sebastian, uh, when, you, when you meet him, he's a very, he I think he consists of uh, food and drinks. So as he's really curious about finding always the, the best thing. I mean, he was the first in Germany to set up a new tonic water brand, which was back then completely madness. But he showed everyone, yes, if you do something good and right, you can, can really do it. And um, it was him who had the idea of saying, hey, why not make a, make a high-end vermouth? And when he uh, talked to me about it, my first thought was, when you, when you think about it, just from a rational perspective, when we were talking 2013, uh, the bar industry in Germany was growing, uh, getting more and more popular, more and more attention to see, hey, look, it's not only three ingredients put together, and that's it. But there are differences between shaken, stirred. There are differences. Vodka is not like vodka. Gin is not like gin. There are so many alternatives. And um, probably that, that was my business background, in fairness, uh, my training looked at it, said there is no differentiation in, in many vermouth types. There's, let's say, Italian, French. We've done it like this for 140 years. That's it. And um, so, yeah, that was the opportunity. We saw the gap, the opportunity of saying, look, contemporary spirits, which are in many cocktails mixed with vermouth, should need or uh, could need a contemporary interpretation of vermouth and that's what we did so we sat down uh, probably when if i would have to nail it down to one major difference for us is the wine now the thing is needs a bit of background germany um when you take pinot noir for instance uh germany is the third biggest pinot noir grower in the world and just where i'm sitting here at the edge of the black forest to the swiss border in south southwest baden uh, Southwest Germany is this biggest um, Pinot Noir growing area. So our best product, best selling product, however you want to name, most interesting was the invention of a rosé vermouth. For me personally, um, really true rosé vermouth because the color comes from the grape. When they're pressed, we leave them in the wine. And uh, that's a key thing with taking fresh wines. Um, we don't alter them. We don't change them. We take the wine as a very important basis for the product. And that back then was pretty new, one of a kind. We uh, then added a fifth one later on and um, pretty much at the same time where people are again saying, you're crazy, you have to start with one product and then make a line extension. Every two years we said, and that's not fun, you know, fun is we developed, to be honest, to be transparent and honest, maybe back then also something that really helped. From day one, we invited bartenders, gastronomy people, press people and showed them everything. We showed them the vineyards, we tasted the base wines, we tasted the final products. We showed them completely our Belsasar, I would like to say Belsasar country, the Belsasar world. And we still do today because amazing to see is that Diageo did not change a thing with the, uh, with the introduction to their portfolio. But we're still producing here at the edge of the Black Forest um, 
that's still something super amazing to see. Mm. What are, have the challenges been like with kind of developing a vermouth market, both in Germany and beyond, where, you know, we're looking at a category that's, you know, been pretty stagnant for a couple of, you know, nearly a couple of centuries, right? Not a lot has changed in it in terms of innovation and certainly not, you know, you, you mentioned talking about wine bases, not really anything, it's not been discussed before in the past. So how's the, how have consumers received that? They've received it pretty well, but it's the same time. That's the that's the tougher, toughest part of anything. You, might, you could even compare it if you'd say, look, I'm, I'm building a new car and it's the best car in the world. Nobody wakes up and says, hmm, maybe I'm going to start looking for a German vermouth. Maybe they change something and make something new. No, you have to go out there and tell the story, tell the story, tell the story. So, um, you know, always when I'm, when I'm asked, like we're doing talks and stuff, I say, oh, sales and marketing, what's more important? Um, both is important, but don't underestimate sales is marketing. Sales is bringing a product to a market. And in fairness, we developed our markets. There were three, four major brands out there, uh, always said, always there. And it was us, Sebastian, me. Soon we got a sales team, own people, agency we're working with to go out there and spread the news, going to bartenders, open-minded, you know, just like Eric, like the top line bartenders who are seeking for new stuff, who are interested, who really, where it's not a job, but it's a passion. Those guys were the ones and will always be the ones listening to you and saying, okay, give it to me. I will try to make a martini cocktail with your vermouth. I will try to make a Manhattan with your vermouth. I will take all the classic recipes and take a contemporary gin, vodka, whiskey, whatever, and you're content yourself. And then they will decide. And that, that's the, the point. It's either up or down. And fairness, we were on the lucky side and the good side. I think we've come up with a pretty cool, unique recipes, hmm. um, nice appearance that people were saying two thumbs up. And that's how the story began. And after a while, obviously, telling, 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 more, it becomes a thing, more or less. Yeah. So, Eric, from the other side of the bar perspective, um what's it been like sort of seeing this landscape of vermouth change over the last 10 15 years i think the one thing which really happened in the category it was the movement from newcomers and really thinking out of the box what just max said that you know it didn't go for the traditional style of vermouth or the grapes or the techniques but you really went out there mentioning the contemporary style and i think that was kind of stirred up the whole category and people started thinking okay there is so much going on in this because the category is huge when it comes to breaking down the the varieties of the vermouths and then the consumer side or the bartender perspective there's so much going on with it because with each and one of them offering you different flavor profile that you can pair it it's whether it's a light spirit or the dark spirit and style of cocktails and i think that was amazing movement and probably also for us as a bartenders a new option to play with and offering to a guest new experiences working with the style of vermouth, which obviously wasn't that easy because obviously vermouth has its up and downs as many other products or spirits categories. But uh, I think the vermouth is now is on a nice direction of being well established and people seeing it as an amazing product that that uh, it's super versatile. It can be consumed in the cocktails, can be consumed just on its own or just in a spritzer. So it's 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 an amazing addition, and I think uh, I wouldn't imagine having a cocktail bar where I wouldn't have a vermouth in it. Mm. It sort of strikes me that it's just it's in it's in this like perfect position. If you imagine like the Venn diagram of of mixology, it sits right in the center because on the one hand you've got well you should have an immediate consumer appeal, given that. It's wine-based, and everyone kind of can relate to wine or has some understanding of what wine is. But then it's also got this, like, botanical component to it. And, of course, everyone loves that at the moment, what with gin and, and you know, the concept of using, like, natural ingredients and everything. And then, like you said, Eric, it's also mixable. You don't necessarily have to drink it on its own. You can mix it with soda. You can mix it with tonic water. You can put it into cocktails. And so it's right there. In, and, and, and the other thing, of course, is it's low ABV. So if, you know, for, with that particular trend and if you're looking to kind of, you know, perhaps not be drinking Manhattans all night long, um, which incidentally has got vermouth in it too, of course, uh, <laughs> then, um, you know, you can drink these like long spritz type drinks um, with, you know, half the alcohol content in them um, and still enjoy all the sort of benefits of, 
you know, um, artisanal craft produce liquids. Um, so it's, I mean, I, I know vermouth's on the rise and we're seeing, you know, lots of new producers and successful ones like Balthazar, but it feels to me like it's not there yet. Um, like there's more that can be done in order to really cement its place as this sort of, you know, one of the leading mixing liquids in a cocktail bar. What do you think, Max? You mentioned all the other benefits, and there was one thing exactly which grabbed my attention is where you said, look, you can't drink Manhattans all night long. The thing is, the, um, the vermouth actually makes a, makes a possible approach. He said, it's exactly that. It's low ABV. And for me, the most fascinating thing right from the beginning about vermouth was, is, and always will be the brilliant combination of lots of flavor, which you can have on the one side, and the comparably low amount of alcohol. So now when you mix it, um, when you take classic cocktails mm. and uh, you raise the amount of vermouth in it, obviously that means you have to reduce the amount of spirit, but at the same time means you reduce the amount of alcohol. So at the end, you might up having a cocktail where when you're willing to add more of the vermouth, obviously maybe it's arguable if at, at the end, if, if you mix it 50-50, is it still a Manhattan? Yes, no, we have to name it. But you might create a drink which is half whiskey, half uh, vermouth, uh, brilliantly tasting, technically lower in ABV, and you actually might have a second one rather than only one. You know, we said, look, that's enough. You might have a second one. And there are multiple benefits to it. The first, most important, I think, is consumer wealth. So the consumer is happy. He's not getting, you know, knocked out. He is, he can manage it. It's cool. He tastes it. He likes it. That, that's the most important thing, I think, also for any gastronomy. But at the end of the day, don't get me wrong, all of us, you know, we have to pay our, um, our rent at the end of the month. So does the bar. And the bar owner will have a good interest in saying, look, I can sell two drinks per guest, whereas before and I would have maybe only have been able to sell one drink a guest. So there is a, a rational component to a highly emotional drink as well. And for me personally, the more benefits you have and everyone is happy, let's say the, the consumer is happy because he can enjoy it responsibly, uh, the bartender is happy because he can make his guests happy and generate the necessary turnover, which everyone uh, on this planet needs. Uh, and also the, the producer, us, is happy because, you know, we obviously, uh, we can present our liquids and our, sell our bottles. Then uh, then it's a perfect match. You know, when it's a win-win-win situation. And this done by lowering the ABV. Well, also, um, a, a great quality bottle of vermouth tends to cost less than a great quality bottle of scotch or, or gin or whatever and so if you shift the ratios then the cost of your drinks coming down too now obviously you could either pass that cost saving on to your guests in which case they may sort of perceive to be having they may think they're having getting better value even though they're probably getting the same value in terms of the cost of the product versus the price you're selling it for or you may choose to price the cocktail the same as you would normally in which case your bottom line is going to be bigger because the drink costs you less to put together in the first place and there you again you will have the win-win-win situation yeah yeah sure um so eric you know what max is saying makes a lot of sense to me we are seeing like more of these like 50 50 martinis and do they call it inverted when you do like an inverted manhattan or an inverted martini and you know you, you flip the ratios around is that the term for it i can't think are you, are you sort of making more divine designing more of these kind of drinks and serving more of them I do actually, when we started talking about how much you can serve of, uh, of drinks when it comes to alcohol percentage, I did just exactly the same thing when I was reopening a grain that one of our signature drink was a uh, sunflower martini. And then I thought about it, that the martini is such an iconic drink, but if you know it, you know what to expect and you probably have one, two, maximum three. But a lot of people just heard about it, but they never knew it and especially I noticed that when Bond movie comes out and he's ordering his Vesper Martini and people just want to be a Bond they just want to have the Vesper Martini but nobody actually knows that it's packed with so much booze and it's so strong it's not a kind of drink that everyone I would choose it for everyone but so I, what I've done I said you know what I take the iconic Martini and I just reduce the alcohol and increase the vermouth so I play with the vermouth elements two different vermouths infused with artichokes and, and increase it to one-to-one. -to -one. And suddenly I realized that, that people who I wasn't expecting from, and they started ordering it and they were drinking it. And it was just amazing to see that the drink didn't just like stuck in a corner and it was a connoisseur would have it to order it. Otherwise would just come back half unfinished because it's way too strong. So that's how I like to see it. And that's how I see the vermouth plays very well in a game that 
increasing the vermouth is just not just reducing my cost because that's not the ultimate it's obviously health but i'm still not cutting off the guest experience from the flavor profile what i'm offering in a cocktail i never i never learned i was trained a bartender i only know it from the consumer perspective but i think for many people still when they read a the name of a cocktail a manhattan a martini cocktail a negroni whatever it is has to be this this and that But when you compare it, I think more people know about food. You know, when you compare it to a Michelin star chef, at the end, they will also just take asparagus and they will take deer or they will take a fish. It is exactly the same ingredients as another chef who might not be, where the food might not be so good. Uh, he's using the same ingredients, but he will manage to get something more nice, more delicate out of it. And I think this is something which luckily changed over the past 10 years, the perception also of bartenders that when you look at a certain degree, let's say, where it's not just a job, but a profession, um, trust your bartender like Eric in, the, in this league, they will know how to mix uh, accordingly and still they will give it, still it will be a, a martini, but slightly different, way better. And that, that's an art of its own. I think the perception of bartenders thankfully changed over the past 10 years. And think of a high-end bartender more like a Michelin star chef rather than somebody putting together ingredients and that's it. Yeah, what I've seen now, it's uh, more the bartender started thinking from the technique perspective, like what it does when I mix, stir or infuse or sous vide the ingredients, what it does to it. Like before that, we would just take ingredients, throw it to the shaker, shake it or stir it in a mixing tin glass and that was it. And I think now that is completely changing. Now we are going to a level of Michelin star chefs that be taking a single ingredient and be, be completely taking it around from every single angle, how I can uh, work with this ingredient in order to get the best out of it, to, to have a reason when I'm putting it into this cocktail, not just have it there because it sounds cool, but at the end of the day, you can't taste anything. So it's really about the technique. So once you have the great products, then once you have the great technique approach to how to combine those flavors and ingredients and have the, the great result at the end. Mm. I think it's um, like a virtuous circle, isn't it? You have uh, the bartender needs the good ingredients uh, to develop great drinks and the, the, the brand needs good bartenders so that they actually have a market for those drinks. And then both of those things together build that consumer confidence. I just you touched on something there. Um, we were talking about chefs and food. It got me thinking about food and cocktails. And I don't know about you guys, but my experience of cocktail and food pairing, yeah, it, sometimes it works and sometimes not so much. But um, vermouth, obviously being wine-based, perhaps has uh, an advantage here. So, um, Eric, have you have you played around with uh, food pairing and, and vermouth dominant cocktails at all? Yeah, and I'm completely agree with you that sometimes, well, sometimes it's quite often it happens that when I go to eat for I go for dinner, it's always ending up drinking wine than uh, eating. But I always start with the aperitif and I always start to carry on that as long as possible. But uh, obviously the vermouth really plays here that really can be that, that it has the wine element to it and it's packed with the flavor. So it doesn't need a lot to it in order to to attach it to a food, just like turn it into a highball as a spritz or just on the rocks and and really does that job that you don't looking around like actually it would be much better if I would just go for wine because often when it comes to cocktails, it, it has to be a, a craft. You have to understand how to blend those flavors together. And good thing about the vermouth is that vermouth really has those. It's For me, it's vermouth is basically a bottled cocktail with full of flavor. And all what you need to do is just like, chill it down, add some ice, add some a little bit of soda or tonic or some mixer to really a little bit open up the flavors. Mm. And you can pair it easily without being disappointed that it won't work because you have the basics there, the wine elements there, and the botanicas just really help. So sometimes it's less is more. And I think in this case would be the perfect way to go ahead because every time when I, when I uh, paired a vermouth-based cocktails, I really try to keep it simple as possible. Because vermouth on its own, it has so much flavors already and you don't want to be too overpowering that all of a sudden you eat the food and you're kind of getting lost in flavors sure. because one is completely one dimension, food is opposite. If I may add to this, uh, I think the, you know, so many times where we were sitting or we sit in, in 
uh, they say marketing groups together and there is this thing in the room saying look we need food and drinks have to go together and then it's decided on a sheet of paper yes we take this food and that drink i think at the end the key really to a successful pairing is to be honest just to, to be honest in terms of look this is a, this is a drink i created does it fit some food yes or no and at some point you have to make the decision to say you know what it's just a drink to be on its own this is what we live for this is what i what i go to bars um you know like an, like an eric's level because i know those guys really know their stuff and really combine it give me as a consumer the best possible uh, combination including sometimes to say you want this drink with that meal i'm sorry mister eventually i have another recommendation to make um try this eventually if you don't like it send it back to me but look this is how i would eventually do it vermouth as a part of it i think yes does work very well because as eric said it brings a tons of flavor already with it but also these flavors i mean this is why belzazov for instance we have a range of five it's not one vermouth it's five different types we're using seven different wines over we're using different sets of um mesrets and they will work differently with different dishes it's always that's the cool thing about food and, and beverage it's about bringing people together talking to each other from chef bartender to guest to consumer to producer uh, making everything work together that's the that's the combining things and eventually to round it up for me that's the world of vermouth we're taking wine and we're taking methods putting everything together in the perfect potent best pos possible combination uh, to make it a good thing mm. i love food pairing but it has yeah, to make sense i think we're on board with that too so besides um present company quaint um where else have you been or bartenders you know um or chefs even maybe that you uh, would you know, that stand out as people who are kind of doing really cool stuff with vermouth or food pairing or just great cocktails or great vermouth bars. Uh, is there such a thing? Are there any sort of dedicated vermouth bars that you've, you've been to? Yes, sir. One, it's called the Odori in Athens. And then the guys, they're really, really taking it seriously. Obviously, Greece has amazing history when it comes to wine production. So they took it so naturally that it makes just sense if you're producing good wine, you have the basics there paired with the botanicals, which I'm sure around all the islands they have. And also the guys in, uh, in Rome, in Jerry Thomas project, they are really uh, working closely because again, you're in Italy, you're in a region where vermouths were born. That's a lot of vermouths came from there. So I think that was amazing progress to see the guys and coming from bartenders, because that's the best way to see that bartender create something that really put everything into it. But also when it comes to chefs, uh, Adam Handling, for example, from uh, Eve's Bar, he's doing amazing stuff. He's a really big wine lover and really loves his, his pairing. And he does amazing pairings because his uh, food bar snacks is just incredible. So love to see that. I recommend you to see that. And also there's another thing which I can see that uh, Vermouth is kind of, has a kind of comeback is the vintage Vermouth that they are also really, really coming up. Salvatore Calabrese at the Donovan's Bar that he has amazing collection of very old vintage forgotten uh, brands that he tried to uh, pair with the forgotten uh, spirits and come up with a very old classic cocktails that how they were written 100, 200 years ago. Nice. How about you, Max? Have you, uh, you must be traveling around drinking a lot of vermouth. So where it stands out for you? London to me, where we are presented a drink I, I deadly fell in love with. Um, two different things. One was the interpretation of a espresso martini, where we'd exchange the vodka into Belzazar red, which made a, a dramatic change for a, a, a modern classic. That was amazing. Or was another place where we were introduced to somebody came up with a mixture of mezcal, Belzazar rose, agave syrup, and some lime. Um, fascinating drink you know which you could have portioned as a ration as a cocktail or even as a long drink uh, when you top it up with some tonic water so many different places i mean when you go to barcelona and you see a vermutaria uh, different vermouth bar places we've been traveling to the nordics denmark sweden uh, i've been to hong kong uh, business-wise uh, you see that's the cool thing you know coming let me one step back coming from I was pictured classic drinks and cocktails, 70% you could say have vermouth in it. And we bring a new vermouth to the markets, to the people, and it appears that they, that they like it and it fits the contemporary spirits. Any place, any bar where the people don't work, but really it's their profession, um, 
is a perfect vermouth place at the end. And I, I always tend to say, no, I'm, I'm a producer. I'm not a bartender. Um, I don't want to pretend I know the best recipes. I don't want to pretend I know what to do. It's my personal joy. I believe in heterogeneity. It's my personal private joy to bring something to somebody who knows how to deal with, who then tastes, analyzes it, and creates something new. So I love to go to a bar and say, when they ask me, what do you want to drink? I said, you tell me what I want to drink. Okay, what mood are you in? You look like, oh, you had a tough day, you're a business day, you're in a rush, you're not, you're this and this. And then they will give me just a drink I need. And too many places to, to mention just one or two of them. Is, um, yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating industry. And it gives so much more than, for me personally, you know, something goes into my body, something different than I just put on top of it. Agreed, yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I'm all on board for uh, bartender's recommendation as well, because I, uh, I, think, I think it's kind of a modern trend now. When you visit a place, you really don't want to miss out on what, what you know, that, the sort of the, the nucleus of what that place has to offer, you know? And so um, it's very easy to walk into a bar and go, ah, well, I like martinis and I like Manhattans or whatever, so all of that. But it's, it's great. You know, if you go to a restaurant, you want to eat kind of the best best dish that that chef produces and i think it's the same with cocktails so i've got i've gotten more used to ordering on menu now although i tend to get a recommendation off the menu whereas in the past i've probably been guilty of just playing it safe with the classic you know that's a fascinating and fantastic thing about all our industry all the culture we're living in and you know everybody these days that has, has talked about um you know respecting each other and everyone i say yeah look at the bar industry it's not only the different people with different backgrounds coming together it's the material itself a martini cocktail in one bar tastes like this same ingredients eventually same producers in another bar might taste different different why because the bartender decides it has to taste this and that way and that's fantastic it's always our individual decision to say i like it or i don't like it i come back i don't come back but at the end it's it's fantastic to have all these opportunities offered so um, I'll stick with it. Go around, tour around, drink, eat responsibly, anything you can. And uh, it's going to be a fantastic life trip. Nice. Um, so some people might criticize us of doing this the wrong way around. We haven't really talked about how vermouth is made, <laughs> all the different styles. Um, but I think that's fine um, because we've, I've, I've, we've had a very good conversation about the culture of vermouth and its, and its uses and everything. Um, and, uh, but I think it would be good to uh, sort of establish a little bit of um, production knowledge for for our listeners, so that we're all kind of on the same page. Especially how it alludes to, um, you know, the different styles, whether it's the, the red vermouth, rosé, um, and the sort of biancos and extra dries and of this world. And and then maybe if you, perhaps if you could take, you know, tell us a little bit about production max and, and those different styles, and then maybe Eric, if you can give us some kind of suggested use cases for each of these different styles and how they might be applied to cocktails and served and, and also how we might educate consumers about them too. Sure. Um, the, the fun thing about vermouth is that on the one side, it's super complex. On the other side, it's pretty easy and straightforward. The easy and straightforward side is the legal side in fairness to it. And I, you know, when we founded the company or I had at the beginning, you know, we didn't found a company, but we sit together and develop a recipe and get our heads around what is vermouth? What does it need? But you come to the point to say, okay, if I want to write the vermouth on my bottle later on and I want to sell it to somebody, yes, there are re legal rules and, um, rules and regulations, which obviously any company would have to stick to. So I think it was important to look at this first. And then crazy enough, it comes, if you want to write vermouth on your label, uh, on your bottle, it has to, it has to contain wormwood, with it, which is the, the herbal where vermouth comes from. It has to have uh, at least 14.5% volume of alcohol, um, not more than 21.9 or 22 is not allowed. And um, uh, when you want to mention it dry, the amount of sugar must not be below 30, 30 gram, uh, above 30 grams. And that's pretty it. And that was fascinating. And it says 75% of it have to be wine by law. So one could say, well, that's, that's pretty strict. How can I move in it? But when you, when you really read it, think beyond 75% have to be wine it doesn't say red white any grape variety anything and just just picture yourself in your local wine store just stand in front of a shelf and you see the world of wine aged non-aged vintages white uh, rosé just by nature by the color of the skin or rosé because red and white mix 
it's it's fascinating, incredibly crazy, driving you nearly mad how many varieties you have on the one side. And then comes the other side, um, herbals, herbs, spices, blossoms, anything you can extract, uh, extract an alcohol, as long as it's not poisoning, obviously. Um, and then combining these worlds of millions of flavors on the wine shelf, millions of flavors on the, um, on the herbals, putting these together. So on the one side, the legal aspects, take those. On the other side, think about all the opportunity given and then finding your way in. So a bit more the deep dive, 75% wine. Okay, we, we take this. So we have a liter bottle in front of us when we started developing the recipes and we were looking for old recipes. And obviously we looked as much as we can find with the existing vermouth brands, what they do. And we tried to understand why do they do it? For instance, we came across that um, most of the time there was French style of vermouth and Italian style of vermouth, uh, sometimes referred to as sweet style of vermouth. And then you would differentiate in the optics between rather light or rather dark. When you read about it in books, like where does that come from? You get tons of billion different answers and background stories. But um, for instance, with the Italian style, you come across the point that it's darkened down because back then in ancient time, when they used to put in a lot of sugar in order to make a stable, Sugar was not super white like, like we have it today, but sugar was most of the time, it could be honey, um, it was malted, it was dark. So when you add it to it, it darkens down. Same thing when you use more, uh, more flavor aromas from macerates. So taking a spice or herb, putting it into alcohol, so it abstracts the aroma, it will darken down. It's like, it's like making tea. A macerate is like making tea, but you would skip the water for a neutral alcohol basis uh, where you put the, the tea bag, so to say, in. Is that sorry? Just to just to chime in there, is the neutral alcohol thing mandated, or could you, for example, use mezcal or scotch or it's something else? Very nice point indeed. Um, no, you can use uh, you could use any difference. It's just it's a, it's a seventy five percent wine, but how does the flavour get into it? Open to you. In fairness, that unfortunately it also opens up to say, oh, you know what? I could buy for twelve euros a little capsula of um, artificial flavour you know, with a pipette and go tip, 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 and 10,000 liters just taste like, I don't know, orange blossom. You can't, you are allowed to do this. You can't do this. Obviously, that would be price-wise, you know, margin-wise, you'd be in heaven. But for us, it was the point of saying, no, that's not how you do it. You know, when I make a cup of tea at home, I don't <laughs> just put artificial flavor. I want the best. So that was our approach to say that we have to stick out uh, by quality, by heritage, by authentic heritage, uh, so we didn't pretend to find an old recipe. We sat down and did did our own. And for us, it was the most natural way to take the proper um, the proper plant, um, fresh or dried, as a whole, cut down. All those different. Uh, there are many, many million possibilities to use it, and then uh, absorb the aroma in a macerate. But then comes again the question: How high is the alcohol of the macerate using? Up to you. Up to if you take high amount of alcohol, you might aggressively drop the flavor from the plant you're entering if it's low abv it might take longer time you get eventually more delicate notes if you take a fresh lemon peel versus a dried lemon peel it have a, will have a different intensity if you change the the temperature of the macerate it will have an influence are you cold macerating or are you actually you can go and heat up the alcohol to 40 50 degrees then enter the plant it again will take different extracts it's you know, that, I hope the point comes clear. It's so easy to make a vermouth. It's wine and some herbs. The, the secret and the difference, and I think also between success and failure, is, is the detail. The, it's as detailed as a cocktail will have to be in the bar. We say, oh, why, why are you putting this one drop of whatever your texture is into your stirrer? Come on, it's, you don't need this. Yes, you need this. This is the, the final bits of the precision down to detail. Eventually, that's something that's very, uh, very much about Belsazar, that we took the time, you know, we developed the recipes, it took us three quarters of a year. In fairness, when we started, Sebastian, I thought, yeah, that's easy. Make a vermouth, you know, let's take one, two months, we're done in the bottom, bam, Christmas, you know, it was summer 2013, we found it, we thought Christmas, we'd be selling the first bottles. It wasn't until spring next year, uh, and you know, the bank account was just going down, 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 all the money collected, it was, it was horrible, but, um, fascinating and um sorry i'm getting dragged away vermouth it's just wine it's extracted aroma you put together 
you filter it and it looks nice and it tastes awesome. Are the botanicals you're using, you source them from outside or you got them also from Germany or nearby or where they all come from? Well, the macerates themselves, we make them in our production sites uh, here at the, the bottom of the Black Forest. Um, but the ingredients, let me give you one example, orange peel. Orange peel is not the best here. So obviously, we know when, you, when, you, when we started this, we had to find our way. The basis, 75% is wine. We're taking the local wine from here, from Germany. That's where we come from. That's what we stand out for. That's a, major, that's a very important part of our flavor and our identity on the one side. On the other side, yes, these Maserat's flavors, they play a very intensive role. And yeah, you come to the point where you say, do I want to make it just local or do I want to make it the best? And the best, and, and again, you know, we live in a globalized world with all the pros and cons. Um, I think the fascinating pros are to have all these opportunities, to see everything, also to, to make other people aware that globalization can be very good, very positive when we all stick together and look in the same direction. And um, that's what we, that's why we decided to take, go for the best flavors. So we have local traders where we buy our ingredients from, uh, where they are analyzed, where they have quality standards, etc. And then, but the methods themselves, the liquid, so to say, the, the aroma, uh, we extract right here in, uh, in our production site at the bottom of the Black Forest, which is still the same as I mentioned at the beginning, where we took all the press people, gastronomy people, still show it. Okay, so Eric, what about serves? Is there anything like particularly um, interesting that you've done with vermouth um, recently? Yeah, absolutely. One of the drinks which we had uh, on the opening menu of Grange was the Not a Stranger. That was purely vermouth-based. In particular, it was a basket of red. I, I took a combe, a seaweed, those big, big leaves which you normally would use for making a soya sauce on some. And uh, what we did, we washed that one off because it comes in a lot of salt. So wash that one off. And then I put it in the oven for about eight minutes on uh, 90 degrees. So literally I roasted the seaweed. So went from very grassy green to more brownish to almost chocolatey flavor. And that was an interesting flavor profile that I was then implementing into the uh, red vermouth. That then we would sous vide that. Once we sous vide that vermouth with the roasted kombucha, we then we just use the vermouth with tonic water. So that was a very simple, like a highball style serve. Interesting. I'm, I'm imagining it gives it a bit more of a like savory umami kind of quality. Exactly. Well, it was. It was almost like a umami, very, very savory. But at the same time, it was just a very straightforward vermouth cocktail without hiding or flavor or masking any flavors or creating any mess around it. So there was a combo was a very interesting savor umami slash flavor preferred to it, which works so well in that. Cool. Now, the other um, drink that famously contains wormwood is, is absinthe. And of course, absinthe was banned production of um, in France and I think Switzerland too, back from you know early part of the 20th century. You, mainly because it was used as a scapegoat for the alcoholism that was knocking about at the time. But nevertheless, it got a lot of bad press and it was put down largely to the thujone content, which comes from the wormwood, Artemisia absinthium, which also, of course, lends its name to absinthe. Now, that sort of killed the industry and, and it started to come back up again in, or in Central Europe, like Czech absinthe and this kind of thing. But they didn't, to the best of my knowledge, contain any wormwood. But all the time, I assume, vermouths were still being made with wormwood in it. So how did vermouth kind of slip underneath that legal net? The amount of tujon is, uh, is regulated. I think it's, it, it never touched us really. I think it was five microgram per liter or five microgram per hundred liter. As a matter of fact, Baza, we, we never came even close to it. In fairness, it's, it's a hell of a lot of amount you need this, this tujon. It's, it's the same like with the tonka bean, it would get you mad. Which again shows how sometimes how crazy legal things are. One thing is allowed, the other thing is not. Um, yeah, which is which is exactly why you know when we take our prod, uh, product, we always put it to a laboratory, have it checked on these levels. Um, that's I think is super most important, you know, because I want to drink it myself. Everyone wants to drink it. Um, how exactly back in those days where they uh, switched it. I think, you know, sometimes eventually there was back then lobbyism on the one side strong, on the other side weak. Yeah, well, I think it all turned out to be a load of rubbish because more recently the, the American absinthe producer, Ted Bro did a bunch of 
um, lab tests on, on old um, absinthe bottlings and found that the thujone levels in those were like inconsequential as well. And, and so, you know, indeed the ban and all the kind of hysteria around it was, you know, not really linked to science. It was just alcoholism um, more than it was, um, you know, any kind of psychoactive um, molecule present within the liquid that came from, from wormwood. So, Eric, just um, I'm interested to know about Quaint, what's happening. Um, tell us about the future for you, because I know our listeners will be interested too. So um, what, what's next? So right now, uh, we've been doing a pop-up in Ibiza through the whole summer. So we've got this great deal with the Mi Hotel. So we're at the Mi Hotel where we can have green cocktails. I have a bartender, Juicy there. She's running that with the local team. While I'm working on the uh, relocation or rebuilding, reopening of Quaint on the Stratton Street, which is just behind the Green Park. So we will be moving from Hedon Street to Stratton Street, from the basement to a grand floor. So more looking into more day trading. So starting from 3 p.m. and we'll see how it goes. We got a 1.30 a.m. license, which is great. So looking into opening probably end of the summer season. So once the ABZ finish wraps up, we close that one and then we come back and do the reopening here. But probably we'll be looking into November, early November. Great. Well, that should be um, shortly after this episode comes out. So everyone who's listening, if you have uh, physical access, make sure you go see Eric at the new location on Stratton Street. Well, look, gents, um, that's been a very fun conversation. It's been good to have you both on. And um, I learned a lot and I'm sure everyone listening did too. So we really appreciate your time. Thanks very much for having us. It's a pleasure and honor. Thank you very much. Thank you, Max. Thank you, Tristan. If you haven't already, make sure you become a Diageo Bar Academy member. It's free. Head over to diageobaracademy.com for the latest industry news, events, and inspiration. And subscribe to get it emailed to you.